Welcome to this episode of Out of the Best Books, the podcast where we deep dive into classic literature and have conversations about what we've learned and discovered along the way. We love all things books and reading, and we want to share our love of the classics with you. We hope to inspire you to read along with us and join in the conversation. I'm Amity. And I'm Laura. Let's get started. All right. So today we're picking back up with A Tale of Two Cities. Yes. By Charles Dickens, we will be covering chapters 9 through 16 today. There's a lot of chapters in this book, and eight chapters may or may not sound like a lot, but there is a lot of stuff that we're going to cover. So thinking about as I'm reading, like, so we studied the eight chapters this week. There's a lot. It's like bouncing around, like, you're going to these people, and then you're going to these people, and then, you know, yeah. and I was thinking about the people reading it in these serial snippets that they would get like every week or every month or whatever and I was like this is confusing I agree at the same time I think that when that's what you're used to and that's you know and they don't have so so much information flying at them at the rate that we do today and so it may have been easier than we think we are just bombarded all the time by so much stuff that our brain is constantly like no wonder we're exhausted all the time our brain is like constantly having to organize and and categorize and be like this belongs here and this belongs there and try to remember what goes with what and simply by virtue of the fact that they didn't have the technology that we have they were not nearly so bombarded by as much information as we were. Yeah. They certainly had their own kind of stress and difficulties and everything else. I'm not saying that at all. It's just different. Yeah. And they were used to, that's how they read. We've talked about before. He reminds you of the characters, but still mm -hmm. it just was like, it jumps around so much and there's so much to keep track of. It's just kind of it's amazing. Well, he actually said something to that, that made me think of that in what we're going to talk about today. When you're receiving information in a certain way, you're able to remember it better just by the way you're even living your life. That sounds confusing, but I we'll, I can't remember right now off the top of my head where it is, but we'll get to that part and then I'll probably bring it up again because it struck me because it made me think of how people, how like minstrels and bards could remember these tons of stories and songs and things to travel around and and deliver to people, but that's just how they lived their life. A little recap of what we talked about in the last episode. So the last couple of chapters, we had the Marquis. He's upset about what happened at that party. He leaves. He thinks it's hilarious to ride through the streets, making everybody run away like because they're scared. So he runs over the little boy. Then the next chapter, he's coming into his village where he lives, where the chateau is. And the... The Mender of Roads. There we go. He, which we will hear from again today, mm -hmm. he sees as the Marquis is coming into town, a man hanging from the bottom of the carriage. And then the man kind of jumps off the carriage and runs over the hill and disappears. So yeah, that's a pretty good summation. He just, at the very end of chapter eight, he arrives at his chateau and we find that he is awaiting his nephew to join him from England. It's Monsieur Charles, and we'll hear more about that in just a minute. So we're going to jump into chapter nine called The Gorgon's Head, and it kind of just starts out with a little bit of a description of the chateau of Monsieur the Marquis 
And I kind of, it's, there's like so much stone that goes into the description that it kind of reminds me of the Beast's castle in the original Disney animated Beauty and the Beast. Just like these stone gargoyles everywhere and just like kind of dark and gloomy. He just enters his chateau and it talks about the flambeau preceding him. He follows basically the guy who's carrying his little lantern up to this room that is beautifully furnished. And there's a table laid out for two. So he's obviously expecting someone. He asks, where's his nephew? He should have been here. He's not there yet, but he will be. And then he kind of notices like a movement outside of the blinds, outside the window. And he's like, what is that? And his servant is standing there. And all he says is, he says, it is nothing. The tree and the night are all that are here. Yes, exactly. But kind of an important detail that the Monsignor uh, notices that there's something outside his window. His servant claims there's nothing, but there might be. I just connected that. I wondered why that was in there. Because I was like, what is, I mean, because he's expecting his nephew. So Mm -hmm. that's what I was kind of thinking like, okay, it was his nephew, but no. Little bit of spooky foreshadowing. So. And then somebody does show up. He hears the sound of wheels after that sound. So his nephew comes in and he says that he's come directly from London. So they just kind of like chit chat back and forth. Kind of interesting. But in this first part, there's nothing like too earth shattering. I don't think if there's something that you think is earth shattering. They're being vague because there's somebody in there with them. Oh, good point. Good point. It's like, I think it even says that's all they're going to say while there's a servant in the room somebody that can overhear what they're talking about. So they are, they're being very big. Although he does mention, Charles does mention that in England, he's known as Charles Darnay. Right now we know that that is not his French name. We don't yet know what his French name is because right now the people closest to him in England don't realize that he has a lot of connection and money in France. Because he just goes by Mr. Charles Darnay, even though his uncle is a marquee. He says, I believe it to be at once your bad fortune and my good fortune that has kept me out of prison in France here. And the uncle says, I do not quite understand. And the nephew Charles says, I believe that if you were not in disgrace with the court and had not been overshadowed by that cloud for years past, a letter de cachet would have sent me to some fortress indefinitely. So I think that there's some pretty bad blood between the two of them. And if... The Marquis had his way, which apparently he really has no sway at court or with anybody in in positions of power. But if he had his way, he would have his nephew shut away. The uncle goes on to talk about basically he really relishes the power that he does hold as a landowner, as a Marquis. Like he had so much control and power. His ancestors have had so much control and power over the lives of like the tenants and the farmers there that he says that basically they held the right of life and death over the surrounding vulgar. And by the surrounding vulgar, he's just referring to the people that live, you know, in their vicinity. From this room, many such dogs have been taken out to be hanged. One fellow, to our knowledge, was poniarded on the spot for professing some insolent delicacy respecting his daughter. Anyway. That was kind of disturbing. So very poniard, I had to look that up, is a dagger. I Just from the context, I imagine it was something like that. But yes, I it's did not interesting, know that. Though, like, so his family isn't as powerful as they used to be. Right. And it's because everybody hates them. Yeah. and And the nephew... Charles 
is the only one of the two of them that can see that. He's like, nobody has respected us for a long time. He even says, I believe our name to be more detested than any name in France. But the problem is that his uncle thinks that's a good thing. He thinks it's a good thing to be detested. Detestation of the high is the involuntary homage of the low. So basically he's like, if the low class hates the high class, the royalty, the nobility, that's a good thing for us. And he keeps saying like, that's a compliment to the grandeur of the family and everything. And Charles is like, just horrified by this. You cannot argue with this man, with the marquee. His brain is wired in such a disordered way. You cannot unravel that. Like you cannot have a logical conversation with that. You can't try to change his mind because his mind is so backward. Yeah, yeah there's I, nothing you can say. You pointed that out, right? That like the marquee thinks that they have to keep everybody in fear to keep control, but he doesn't see that, okay, but this isn't working. But then Charles yeah. is like, but the reason we've lost control and the reason people hate us is because we're how we're treating them. He can totally see it. And the, the marquee is blind. Yeah, completely. He even says repression is the only lasting philosophy. The dark deference of fear and slavery, my friend, will keep the dogs obedient to the whip as long as this roof shuts out the sky. But what's kind of interesting, and again, he he puts foreshadowing all throughout this. He says, that might not be so long as the marquee supposed. In other words, that roof may not be shutting out the sky. This chateau may not be standing so long as he supposes. He thinks, and I think that so many of the nobility have the same idea, that first of all, they were divinely appointed, that their blood was somehow almost near to God, you know, that you cannot do anything to bring it down, to shut it down, to change that. They were just wrong. They were so arrogant in their ignorance. And that was ultimately their downfall. But Charles says, look, we have done wrong. We're reaping the fruits of our wrong. And the Marquis just can't stomach that. He's like, no, we haven't done wrong. Charles' mother is the one that wanted him to be better or treat the people better. And if you dig into here, you can see that the Marquis is Charles's father's twin brother, and they thought alike. So his father and his uncle were were alike, and and Charles is trying to please his mom, her dying wish or whatever, to be a better person. Yeah, exactly. That's what he says, is that it was his mother's last dying wish. And we can see that, you know, Charles is kind of, he is a product of his birth and his, the way he was raised. But obviously his mother had enough influence that he's able to break away from that. And if there is a lot of good in him, he can totally see, you know, the evils of their way of thinking and the way of life. The Marquis says, my friend, I will die perpetuating the system under which I have lived, which is kind of an interesting thing because, oh, because Charles is like, look. Things are going to change whether, and and we get the idea that Charles is going to inherit everything that the Marquis has, right? And so he's like, whether you pass it down to me tomorrow because you die tomorrow or in 20 years, it doesn't matter. Like things are going to change. He like kind of says, well, he says, I don't want your stuff because he thinks that the property and the family name is cursed. Because he says, whether it came to me tomorrow or in 20 years, I would abandon it and the system under which 
you know, all of this stuff was taken. So yeah, thank you. So I highlighted this quote, uh, to the eye, it is fair enough here, but seen in its integrity under the sky and by the daylight, it is a crumbling tower of waste, mismanagement, extortion, debt, mortgage, oppression, hunger, nakedness, and suffering. And the Marquis like, ha, like, yeah, yeah, I know. Sort of like proud of that fact. Yeah. Charles just says, if it ever does become mine, it shall be put into some hands better qualified to free it slowly. And the uncle's like, okay, so how do you plan to live then? You know, like you can be super critical of this, but this is your livelihood. You know, like this is what sustains you. And he says, I, I plan to work. You know, he talks about how England is his refuge and they start talking about Dr. And Miss Manette. And the Marquis kind of mocks that. He's like, a doctor with a daughter. Yes. So commences the new philosophy. Basically, just like, okay, so you're stooping this low, you know? It's because of them that you have this stupid new philosophy. Yeah. And he kind of wants to just end it. So he says, good night. He leaves. He goes to his room. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. But basically, it kind of reminds you of what happened that day, like that very day, he was responsible for the murder of a baby. And yet he's able to lie down in his bed and just go to sleep, like without a second thought. And that I think right there is just Charles Dickens is trying to show us very vividly where these people were at, the nobility. And it certainly wasn't all of them, but a lot of them. And that's really what brought the people of France to the point that they were like, we're done. When someone can murder a baby and sleep soundly that same night, that's disgusting. You know, it talks about how everybody's asleep, everybody's dreaming, and it just goes through all these descriptions of things and how gradually the sun comes up, it's a new day. And as the sun shines on the chateau, it says there's now one stone face too many because, and this, so there's an added stone face up at the chateau. It lay back on the pillow of Monsieur the Marquis. It was like a fine mask, suddenly startled, made angry and petrified, driven home into the heart of the stone figure attached to it was a knife. Round its hilt was a frill of paper on which was scrawled, drive him fast to his tomb. This from Jacques. We end the chapter with Monsieur the Marquis having been murdered in his bed. And there's a little note attached. It was Jacques. Yeah, he's like Jacques, since everybody's name is Jacques. Yeah. He's a horrible face. Yeah. It's like he's, I don't know, like you could just picture his face, like, I don't know if his eyes are open or whatever, but as he's killed, he's just left with this stone, awful face. Yes. And so, and you do certainly, it's reminiscent very much of those of a scary gargoyle. Yes. Again, the the Beauty and the Beast castle before, you know, while they're under the, the spell, there's like the freaky stone gargoyles with like their tongues hanging out and their eyes bulging. And on to chapter 10. So this chapter is called Two Promises. It's at one year later. And Charles is living in London, but he's working as a French teacher. And so he does what he said he was going to do. He's going to go and is going to work for a living. Because it's like, what are you going to do? Like, the Marquis probably like, work for a living? What? Yeah. And he wants yeah. just normal. And, yeah. Know. That was degrading to them. 
Yes. He decides he's going to go visit Dr. Minette. And because he knows that Lucy is out. I, I liked this. He had loved Lucy Minette from the hour of his danger. So when he first saw her at court, he mm-hmm. never heard a sound so sweet and dear as the sound of her compassionate voice. He'd never seen a face so tenderly beautiful as hers when it was confronted with his own on the edge of the grave that had been dug for him. <laughs> so he's like just talking about being in court. And- yeah. Yeah. Seeing his life flash before his eyes. And there she was. I watched a YouTube video about these chapters and like they mm-hmm. called it the bachelorette of a tale of two cities or whatever <laughs> the bachelorette because it, yes. it's kind of like far from the matting grab i mean that's like what we're dealing with is just all yes. these scooters and all these people are all these men are in love with her anyways yeah good point the best one <laughs> so yes charles goes to talk to dr Bennett and he tells him that he loves lucy and at first dr Bennett is upset he like kind of freaks out and doesn't like the idea. And then Charles kind of explains to him, like, I understand your relationship. I understand that you need her. I understand what she does for you. I don't want to come between you. I, you know, I intend to move in with you and like, nothing's going to change. Don't worry. And I think that makes Dr. Manette feel a little bit better about that. He says, so he says, I have felt and do even now feel that to bring my love, even mine between you is to touch your history with something not quite so good as itself. But I love her. Heaven is my witness that I love her. He's just kind of professing his love for her. Now, then Dr. Manette, after he freaks out and then Charles kind of calms him, he says, do you want me to help you with her? Like, does she know that you love her? And would you like me to help you? And he basically says, no. He asks, do you have any reason to believe that Lucy loves you? Yeah. And I think he says, no. Yeah, I don't think he does. And then he asks Dr. Manette if she has other suitors. He says, you've seen Mr. Carton here yourself. Mr. Stryver is here too, occasionally. If it be at all, it can only be by one of these. So he just kind of, Dr. Manette names the three that have been kind of coming around. So, you know, he says, will you help me? Or do you want me to help you? And he says, no, I don't need your help. I'm going to tell her myself. Then Darnay gets to the point where he wants to tell Dr. Manette his real name. And Dr. Manette is like, I, I picture like he holds his ears. He says, stop, stop, yeah. don't tell mm-hmm. me. I, I think he is aware, isn't he? Kind of aware of who he I is. I think he's got to be. It's like he just doesn't want to face the truth or something. Because why else would he have such a problem with it? And it does make you wonder and this is this is me totally not remembering the rest of the book it does make you go okay is it his family possibly his uncle who is responsible for or maybe even his father who's like responsible for dr manette being put in prison it is i wrote that down i I read it somewhere that is it possible that the marquee was responsible for dr manette going to prison Mm. and that yes you're right so he must know I think that he does. That's what his fear is. So he says, don't tell me who you are, but if you do marry Lucy on the morning of your wedding, then I want you to tell me what your real name is. Then Lucy gets back and Dr. Manette is working on his shoemaking again. So that tells you that like something stressed him out. And it's not too bad this time because she comes in, they do their walking thing, right? And then he just goes back to bed. And then when she checks on him later, he's asleep and his shoemaking stuff is laying on the table where it's supposed to be. I wrote down, does Dr. Manette have a hunch of who Darnay really is? 
and he doesn't want to think about it or know. And so that's why he stops him from telling him. Yeah, th there's a major like PTSD there. I also think like it could also be sort of a dual reaction because something that he brings up in here, Darnay says, I know that when she is clinging to you, the hands of baby, girl, and woman all in one are around your neck. So it's really like they're trying to make up for all this lost time. He's trying to have the time with her that he didn't get when she was a little girl and growing up to be a, a young woman and now full grown woman. And so there's possibly the trauma of the thought that he's losing his daughter again. So that would be really difficult. And then, like you say, there's got to be a connection that he understands for the reason that he was put into prison. That's, you know, probably a relation of Charles Darney. So. The other thing is, he's not going to proclaim his love to Lucy. He's going to wait. And if Lucy tells her father that she loves Charles, then they're going to make it happen. So yeah. they're kind of just waiting on her. They're not going to push her in that direction at all. That would be very difficult, I think. I hope you come around. I hope she likes me. So chapter 11, a companion picture. This one is, it's a pretty short chapter, but it's, it's also kind of funny, kind of sad. Like you said in the beginning, it really does jump around a lot. So we started out in France with the marquee. Then we jumped to England with Dr. Manette and then we are, we're still in England, but we're now with Mr. Striver and Sydney Carton. It talks about how Mr. Striver is talking to his jackal, who is Sydney. Says, mix another bowl of punch, I have something to say to you. And then it goes into how Sydney had been working double tides that night and the night before and the night before and a good many nights in succession. But we've talked about how he doesn't really sleep. He must have insomnia. And he also drinks a lot. Because he's working on all these things for Mr. Striver so that he can be successful. Because we talked in our previous episodes how basically Sidney Carton is obviously very brilliant. He just doesn't apply himself where it matters because he kind of does all the work for Striver and then Striver takes all the credit because he doesn't mind getting up in front of people and like saying everything, but he doesn't really do any of the study and, and the work beforehand. And it talks about how Sydney is in a very damaged condition. He keeps pulling his little towel turban thing off and re-dipping it in the water and putting it back on. And he's drinking like crazy. And Striver wants to talk to him about something. He says, I'm going to tell you something that will rather surprise you and that perhaps will make you think me not quite as shrewd as you usually do think me. I intend to marry. And Sydney's like, oh, Okay. He's like, yes. And it's not for money. What do you think about that? And Sydney's like, I don't know. Who is she? And Striver just keeps saying, guess, guess, guess. Sydney's like, I'm not going to guess at five o'clock in the morning. I'm exhausted. You know, I just love that. They kind of like have this banter going back and forth. It's, it's kind of funny. And Striver, he's like, I care more to be agreeable and take more pains to be agreeable and know better how to be agreeable in a woman's society than you do. Striver thinks very highly of himself, way more highly of himself than anybody else thinks of him. Sydney, it's just kind of funny. I think that he just kind of puts up with them. He even tells Sydney, he's like, I'm ashamed of you. I'm ashamed of how you are 
in company. You need to take better care of yourself. You're very ill-conditioned in society. You are a disagreeable fellow. And he talks a lot about his behavior around ladies. He's like, you don't know how to act around a lady. And it's not that Striver does, but he can certainly see that Sydney, and again, he, Striver thinks that he knows how to act in front of ladies, but he doesn't, but he can really see that Sydney doesn't either. He's like, look at me. I get on. He keeps alluding to who the young lady is that he really wants to marry. He's like, he wants to talk about her, but he's like, guess who, guess who? And then later he's like, um, well, you've, you've talked about her before. Like, he's like. Yeah. And he says, you made mention of the young lady's a golden haired doll. And he finally reveals it's Miss Manette. This is funny too. Cause right after that, it says, if you had been a fellow of any sensitiveness or delicacy of feeling in that kind of way, Sydney, I might've been a little resentful of your employing such a designation, but you are not. And isn't this chapter called, no, it's not. The next one is called the fellow of delicacy, yeah. but he's like, if you were any kind of guy that was worth anything, I'd have been worried when you mentioned Miss Manette, but I'm not worried. Yeah, because you were critical. Yes, exactly. And that's, I did underline that because I thought it was kind of funny. He says, I'm no more annoyed when I think of the expression than I should be annoyed by a man's opinion of a picture of mine who had no eye for pictures. You know, so he's like, like your opinion means nothing. And I think it's funny throughout this entire exchange, Sydney will like take a drink and laugh. He'll take a drink and then look at his friend. Take a drink, look at his friend. It's just, it's really funny. He's getting quieter and quieter and drinking more and more, more and more punch, more punch. (laughs) Yes, just keep drinking. Okay, and Striver, he's so annoying. He's like, I've made up my mind that I'm going to please myself. You know, I don't need to marry for money. I'm, you know, successful and I'm on the rise. This is actually good fortune for her. And it makes me happy. So this is what we're going to do. So, and then he says stuff here that you're like, okay, red flag, red flag. I feel that it is a pleasant thing for a man to have a home when he feels inclined to go to it. When he doesn't, he can stay away. And then he starts sort of drilling into Sydney. He's like, I want to say a word to you about your prospects. You are in a bad way. You are really are in a bad way. You don't know the value of money. You live hard. You'll knock up one of these days and be ill and poor. You really ought to think about a nurse. In fact, he tells him he should marry somebody who can take care of him. He should marry just to have somebody there to take care of him. And he should marry against a rainy day. He's like, just think about it. Sydney's like, all right. It's funny how these books, Far From the Madding Crowd, I mean, you've got um, Sergeant Troy. Mm -hmm. So much of himself. I mean, that's how this guy was. He just was like. It's an honor for her to be married to me. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine why she wouldn't want to be. Why would she ever say no? There would be something wrong with her. So chapter 12, the fellow of delicacy. Now, this is what's funny. So this chapter is about Striver, I think, right? Yeah. Yes. And he's the opposite of the fellow of delicacy. Yes, absolutely. Not who he is. So Striver is on his way to Lucy Manette's house to propose because- well, why not? She's going to say yes, and she's going to be all over it. And they're all going to be so happy that he would want to marry her because she would be so lucky. First little page here, like the second the second paragraph, he's talking about his relationship with Lucy as if it's a court case. Yeah. Like slam dunk. 
I got this. You know, like I said, why would she not want to marry me? So on the way there, he decides that he's going to stop at Telson's Bank to see Mr. Lorry. This is kind of a funny exchange because Mr. Lorry is kind of a small guy and Mr. Striver is this huge guy and they're in this yeah. little room together. And so Mr. Lorry's kind of like backed up against the wall and Mm -hmm. Mr. Stryber is very intimidating. So he's kind of like, hey, Mr. Lori, guess what? I'm going to go propose to Lucy. Is this great? And Isn't she so lucky? <laughs> she's so lucky. And Mr. Lori's kind of like, he gets awkward and stiff and he's like, you're, you're going to do what? I don't think this is a good idea. So he advises him not to go. He's like, I don't think you should go propose to her. And he says, because I wouldn't go on such an object without having some cause to believe that I should succeed. He's like, what makes you think that she's going to say yes? And, you know, of course, Mr. Stryver's like, well, of course she's going to say yes. Why wouldn't she? And then it's because Mr. Laurie believes he knows what Lucy's answer is going to be. <laughs> I don't, it, and that's just funny, I think, because Mr. Stryver is like in a whole nother world. Backing up just a little bit to him. All of his virtues, any woman would want him. He's like, I'm eligible, I'm prosperous, I'm advancing, anybody would want me. And to him, that's all that matters. Nothing yeah, else. I like that exchange because he's like, well, am I not prosperous? And Mr. Lloyd's like, well, yeah. <laughs> it's like, am I not advancing? Well, yeah. Like, I can't deny those things, but yet I don't think Lucy's going to say yes. This is a driver. Then you mean to tell me, Mr. Lori? That it is your deliberate opinion that the young lady at present in question is a mincing fool? Yeah. Like, is she stupid? If she doesn't want me, she therefore must be stupid. Yes. And then he's, yeah, he's like, I don't think, I still don't think she's going to say yes. Let's see. And then he says, this is something new to me, Mr. Laurie. You deliberately advise me not to go to Soho and offer myself, myself, Striver. Of the King's Bench Bar. He just thinks so much of himself. He just can't imagine why somebody wouldn't want to be with him. He basically, Mr. Lori basically tells him, why don't I go first and try to feel it out and see what I think she'll say. And then I'll come back and tell you because I wouldn't want you to go and get hurt. I don't know. Is there a reason? Like maybe just that's it. He's like, I'll just go ahead and see. I'll go ahead of you and see what I think she's going to say. Yeah. And so he does. And then he comes back. And of course, it's bad news. It was what he expected that she wouldn't marry him. And then, of course, Striver has decided by now to just drop it all. He's like, yeah, I I don't want her. <laughs> He's like, my way out of this is to put you all in the wrong. And now he feels bad for everybody else. Yeah. Because now, like, her family's going to be upset or whatever because he's the one that's decided he doesn't want her. And then he's decided that she is, what, a empty-headed mince? Let's see. You cannot control the mincing vanities and giddiness of empty-headed girls. You must not expect to do it or you will always be disappointed. Not worth his time. He just decided it would have been bad for me anyways. She wouldn't have been good for me. So yeah. this whole chapter is just him and his arrogance and conceit and yeah beginning with 100 confidence that she should love him and would accept him because why wouldn't she to i'm better off without her and it's like she's stupid i so, didn't want her anyways i didn't want her <laughs> their loss you know the next chapter though as you get into it the fellow of no delicacy 
Yes. So yeah, we get this little contrast. Chapter 12 is the fellow. What is it? Is it just called the fellow of delicacy? Oh, delicacy. So the interesting thing is that actually this chapter is about Carton who has some delicacy. Yes, he actually really does. And we kind of get this softer, gentler side of him where you actually kind of feel bad for him. So the first line of the chapter, I think, is very telling. It says, if Sidney Carton ever shown anywhere, he's certainly never shown in the house of Dr. Manette. He had been there a lot. They knew him very well. They knew him. They knew Striver. They knew Charles Darnay. They were frequently there. But whenever he was there, he was just kind of blah, just kind of acted unhappy. But it talks about how he would just like wander there. He was obviously completely besotted over Miss Manette, but he didn't really know what to do about it. He goes there one day. He talks to Miss Manette. And he says, so he shows up, he finds that she's working alone upstairs. And so he just goes and sits by her. She notices that he doesn't look very well. And she's like, what's the matter? You're not looking too good. And he says, the life I lead, Miss Manette, is not conducive to health. And we know that. He like, he never sleeps. She's like, okay, well, why don't you change it? And he's like, it's too late for that. I will never be better than I am. And he's like, I need to tell you something. And she's like, okay. And basically, he's declaring his love for her. He says, you have been the last dream of my soul. In my degradation, I have not been so degraded, but that the sight of you with your father and of this home made such a home by you has stirred old shadows that I thought had died out of me. Since I knew you, I have been troubled by a remorse that I thought would never reproach me again and have heard whispers from old voices impelling me upward that I thought were silent forever. I have had unformed ideas of striving afresh, beginning anew, shaking off sloth and sensuality and fighting out the abandoned fight. A dream, all a dream that ends in nothing and leaves the sleeper where he lay down. But I wish you to know that you inspired it. So basically he's saying to her, I want to be a better man. And if anybody could get me there, like you've inspired me to try, but I just can't. And so I'm not worthy of you, even though I do love you. And, and he's like, if anybody could reclaim me, you could, but I just, I don't think that's possible. And so he's just like, I've come here to tell you this so that I can carry through the rest of my misdirected life, the remembrance that I opened my heart to you. And she keeps trying to tell him, look, don't give up. Keep trying, you know? I like how she's kind of like, can I not help you? Even though I don't love you, can I not? I, can't I know. Help, right? Yeah. Cause she has a true and a loving heart. I think she can see that he is a good person. She doesn't love him, but not in a romantic way, but I think that she loves and cares for him as a friend and wants him to be better than what he's allowing himself to be. But basically he's like, I shared this confidence with you and let me live forever knowing that it just stays with you, that if anybody could have changed me, it would have been you. But like I'm past hope basically. And he also says, look, I'm never going to bring this up again. I just needed to tell you this. And then, and now we're done basically. And it says that Lucy Manette wept mournfully for him as he stood looking back at her. This is the last thing that I think is really important to remember. He says, for you and for any dear to you, I would do anything. I would embrace any sacrifice for you and for, for those dear to you. Think now and then that there is a man who would give his life 
to keep a life you love beside you. That is very significant. Foreshadowing. Yes. And he just leaves. Driver is selfish and Carton is selfless. Very much. Yeah. He really, it's, it is very tragic, but you can see in a way it's kind of a wasted life. And it's really sad because he's obviously very brilliant. He's very, he really is very thoughtful. He's very kind. There's just this missing something that he has no drive, no desire to do more with himself which is really sad. So chapter 14 is called The Honest Tradesman. This one cracks me up. It's kind of a funny chapter. Yes. Okay, so back to Mr. Cruncher, right? Because yeah. we've now visited everybody. So he's sitting outside the bank on a stool where he usually is, and his son is with him. They see a funeral procession come by. And so his son kind of asks, what is that? And he says, it's a funeral procession. The kid kind of gets excited. He's like, oh, hooray, you know? And Jerry's like, he gets mad at him and kind of hits him and says, why are you excited? Let's see. He says, the young gentleman uttered this exultant sound with mysterious significance. The elder gentleman took the cry so ill that he watched his opportunity and smote the young gentleman on the ear. It's like, what do you mean? Why are you, what are you hooraying at? This boy is, is a getting too many for me. I say that about my kids all the time. This boy is too much for me. <laughs> too much for me. So basically this funeral procession is coming through and a crowd is harassing the driver of the hearse and they're yelling spies. Uh, it's hard to, I don't know how to recreate what they're saying. Yeah. Spies. Yeah. Spies. And there's one mourner with mm-hmm. this funeral procession, right? But whoever's in this coffin, they're accusing of being a spy. The name of the spy is Roger Clyde, which if you remember him, he was one of the witnesses in the trial with Charles Darney. Yes, he testified against him. This all is really addressing this idea of mob mentality. Mm -hmm. And so it is very significant that like the first couple of people that Cruncher asks, like what is going on and who, why are they in such an uproar? Who is it? Like, I don't know. Somebody said he's a spy. So we hate him. You know, it's really, it's pretty disgusting and it'll carry on there's more yeah and but. he remembers him cruncher is like oh yeah he was mm-hmm. the old bailey and that thing i helped out with and he says i've seen him dead is he dead as a mutton returned the other and can't be too dead have him out there spies pull them all out spies what happens though is this mob well jerry follows the mob so he's watching all this happen the mob takes over the hearse So kind of takes over the driving of it and moves the driver over. They rough up the driver and they take over the procession. And they kind of all get in, I think, with the casket. Like there was one mourner and there's a bunch of them in there. Yes. So they drive him out to the cemetery and they hold a mock ceremony for the man, right? Because he's a spy, so he's worth nothing. Is that am I right? They're mocking him and they they bury him. And then afterwards, the, it says the dead man disposed of and the crowd being under the necessity of providing some other entertainment for itself, another brighter genius, or perhaps the same, conceived the humor of impeaching casual passersby. Okay, so basically, they go cause more trouble. So they're mm-hmm. in the streets just wreaking havoc. And I can't, I've never really seen a mob. You know, it happens nowadays sometimes, but like, yeah. I've never been there and but it's it is this very much this primal instinct i think every well i think everybody just goes to their amphibian brain 
the amphibian level of their brain and just starts going wild. There's no control. I know that Ken, when he was on his mission in Brazil, I know lots of people have experienced it, I'm sure. But he said it was something that was so dark and terrifying. He was on his mission in Brazil and these two little girls had been raped and murdered. The horrible guy who had done it, or maybe there were two of them. I think there was just one. He was in the local jail where Ken was serving in Brazil. And this mob formed. They were ready to go and just tear this guy apart. The missionaries were told, you go into your apartment and you stay there. Don't even budge out, you know? You know, and they had to call out like basically the Brazilian version of the SWAT teams to keep these people from tearing this guy limb from limb because they were just, it's just like pulsing forward. And there's just like this energy and it's just kind of, and you, you like understand their anger, but some of them didn't probably even know what was going on. It was just everybody swept up in this and they're so out of control. They would have done anything. And he's, it was very, very disturbing. And I think about, you know, hearing about even like on Black Friday, I remember so many years ago, there was like a Walmart in New York or somewhere where, where a man was literally trampled to death because people were trying to get into Walmart for the Black Friday sales. People knew they were trampling him, but they didn't care. That is wild. How do you get to that point? Yeah. How do you get to that point? Right. Exactly. So, but so, that's what these people are doing. They're just wreaking havoc at this point, breaking yes, windows everywhere. And then they think that they get wind that like the guards are coming. And so they, it breaks up. Everybody kind of goes home. Well, Jerry Cruncher goes back home. I was excited about this chapter because I kind of wanted to understand a little bit more about Jerry Cruncher and like his nightmare mm-hmm. job. <laughs> like, yeah. Didn't understand why he was How... robbing graves. Yeah. So he goes home and of course he's complaining that his wife is praying. You get this picture later that she knows what his nighttime job is and she's worried about him because they don't think it's right so his son starts to ask him like where is it that you go at night I don't understand what you know and he's like I go fishing Mrs. Cruncher knows I go like your mom knows I go fishing right so they have this little conversation about like where he goes at night he says I'm going as your mother knows a fishing that's where I'm going to going fishing this sounds like your fishing rod gets is getting rather rusty isn't it dad? <laughs> and he's like, Oh, never you mind. And then his son says, well, are you going to bring home any fish? Anyways, I just think that's kind of funny. He's kind yeah. of a detective. The last, it says the rest of the evening, he wanted to keep a vigilant watch on Mrs. Cruncher and he held her in conversation so that she couldn't go meditate or pray. And then his son is, he kind of urged his son to hold conversation also. I liked the sentence too. The devoutest person could have rendered no greater homage to the efficacy of an honest prayer than he did in the distrust of his wife. It was as if a professed unbeliever in ghosts should be frightened by a ghost story. Mm-hmm. It's like he doesn't believe in prayer. Yeah. Why is he worried about her praying? To me, he's one of the villains of this book. So, okay. The boy goes to bed. He gets up. And I love this like comedy in this part where he's getting his fishing gear and it keeps saying he's getting his fishing gear which includes a crowbar of a convenient size a rope and chain and other fishing tackle of (laughs) nature disposing these articles about in skillful manner he bestowed a parting defiance on mrs cruncher extinguished the light and went out he had to give her one more 
whatever. They don't like each other or he doesn't like her. So then Jerry's son gets up and follows him as they're going. I like this too. I mean, like they, Charles Dickens continues with this idea of fishing and it's kind mm-hmm. of fun, right? Like they pick up one fisherman and then they pick up another fisherman. Okay. So he's got these two other people going with him. So they go to the churchyard. They start fishing with their spades, fished with a spade at first. Presently, the honored parent appeared to be adjusting some instruments like a great corkscrew. They dig up this coffin. And I think before he opens it, the the son gets scared. And so he runs off. Yeah. Yeah, I think that he suddenly realizes what they're doing. What they're doing. Well, he does because the truth kind of hits him and it's terrifying and he runs off so he runs off and as he's running he's imagining this coffin following him all the way and so that i thought that story was kind of cute like i mean not cute but kind of funny this imagines chasing him yeah chasing him (laughs) like bumping down the road and like it even chases him into the house and up the stairs okay so then he basically i think he goes into a closet and goes to sleep Then he's awakened in the morning when his dad has come home and something, (laughs) this is awful, something had gone wrong because, you know, the son had run off before they opened the coffin. Something had gone wrong. And so Mr. Cruncher is beating Mrs. Cruncher. Yeah. Taking it out on her that something. And I think he's like, you did something with your prayer and it did something to us. And anyways, what happened is there was no body in the coffin. So yeah, he's upset. So he takes it on his wife. He says, is it being a good wife to oppose your husband's business? Is it honoring your husband to dishonor his business? Is it obeying your husband to disobey him on the vital subject of his business? And so he's mad that she had prayed and intervened his work as a honest tradesman. So in the morning, of course, the sun gets up and there's no fish for breakfast, right? And not much of anything else. And Mr. Cruncher is acting funny, kind of probably hot-tempered. I think they're on their way back to the bank. And the son is asking him, what is a resurrection man? And Mr. Cruncher says, well, how should I know? And he says, I thought you knowed everything, father. He says, hmm, well, he's a tradesman. What's his goods, father? His goods is a brand of scientific goods. Person's bodies, ain't it, father? I believe it's something of that sort, said Mr. Cruncher. Oh, Father, I should so like to be a resurrection man when I'm quite grown up. So what we find out is that he is selling these bodies to science, to doctors and scientists that are studying them. In the last paragraph, it just talks about how Mr. Cruncher is proud, but he's also kind of worried about his son saying that he wants to be a resurrection man. Yeah. That was funny. My favorite part was them talking about keeping up the idea of fishing. Uh, Yeah, I thought that was very clever. So do we know why the body was not in there? Like had the people removed it or did he not actually die? Because it talks about how there was one man, one mourner in the carriage, but as the mobs overtook it, the man took all of his stuff off, all of his mourning clothes and the people took it and like ripped it to shreds and he like escaped into the woods. Maybe he wasn't actually a mourner. Maybe he was the one that took his body or maybe he was not dead. Maybe that was Roger Clyde. Maybe he was having to fake his death. Everybody's going to see that we haven't read the entire book yet. We don't (laughs) know what happens. And and as I said before, I read it before. Couldn't tell you what happens. So this is all fun. In the other room watching the movie. Oh, okay. That's awesome. 
He just texted me and said that he's watching Prince Humperdinck. <gasps> yes, I remember Chris Sarandon. I remember seeing previews for that one when I was just little. He's watching it right now. But I've never actually seen that movie. So, okay, you'll have to ask him how it is and then let me know because I... Well, so I have to tell you one really quick funny thing. So on YouTube, you can watch during the pandemic, a bunch of celebrities recreated the Princess Bride from their homes. What? It's I did not crazy. know that. And so like the same characters aren't even playing this or the same actors aren't even playing the same characters through the whole thing. Okay. All the dialogue. It's hilarious. They use Legos. They use, oh my gosh, it's so funny. Oh watch. my gosh. I am going to have to find that. That is so funny. Princess Bride. I'm always astonished by people who have not seen the Princess Bride. Especially if they're like my age, your age, a little older. Like how have they not seen the Princess Bride? I don't know anyway. how to get through life without that. I, I don't know either. I feel like at this point, it's totally a classic. And it's one they should never remake. No. <laughs> like it has to be kept exactly the way it is. Chapter 15, knitting. So now we're back in Paris at the wine shop of Monsieur and Madame Dufage. And Monsieur Dufage is not there, but this shop is full. Lots of people. And they're drinking early. It's early in the day. Miss Madame Dufage, of course, is sitting there. She's presiding over everything. She's knitting, as usual. But about midday, Monsieur Dufage arrives and... He has with him the mender of the roads in a blue cap. And this is interesting. No man spoke when they entered the wine shop, though the eyes of every man there were turned upon them. So it just grows like completely silent. And Monsieur Defarge says, good day. It is bad weather, gentlemen. Upon which every man looked at his neighbor and then all cast down their eyes and sat silent, except one man who got up and left the room. So then they start talking about their traveling and here's this guy with me. And then a little bit later, a second man gets up and leaves the room. They keep talking, drinking. A little bit later, a third man gets up and leaves the room. And then they kind of excuse themselves and Monsieur Defarge takes the mender of roads and they go up the stairs to the garret where Dr. Manette used to be. In the garret are the three men who got up and left. And we find out that those are the same three men who had been looking in on Dr. Manette. So it's the three Jacques, quote unquote. And we find out that this Mender of Rhodes has a story to tell. And so they tell him to start. The Mender of Rhodes starts his story. He's like, a year ago, this is what happened. I'm just like minding my own business. This The carriage of the marquee comes up the hill and there's a man hanging on the chain, right? This is what we talked about in the last episode. He tells them the whole thing. Jacques one is like, have, have you ever seen him before? He didn't know. The Mender of Rhodes had never seen him before, but he could recognize him because he was a very, very tall man. So sometime later, he says, I'm collecting my tools to descend to my cottage when I raise my eyes and see coming over the hill, six soldiers and in the, in the midst of them is a tall man with its arms bound tied to his sides. He realizes that it's the same man who was holding onto the chain under the carriage. And he just talks about how he sees them coming up. The, the soldiers are quite, they're all like covered in dust. They're quite cruel to this man. The man is lame. And so he's moving slowly, but they're like, moving him along with their guns, just like shoving him along. He, at one point, 
he falls down into the dust, this tall man does. And of course it, you know, hurts him really badly because he couldn't catch his fall because his hands are bound behind his back. And they just pick him up and laugh at him and they take him to the prison in the village. They see the prison gate open up and swallows him up. And this is so funny. He says, all the village sees the prison gate open in the darkness of the night and swallow him like this. And at this point, the Mender Rhodes, I wish we knew his name. (laughs) It's just the Mender Rhodes. He opened his mouth as wide as he could and shut it with a sounding snap of his teeth. And then evidently there's quite a pause because Defarge is like, okay, keep going. (laughs) Because he's like flapped his mouth shut and it's just like, "Mm, (laughs) not going to open it again. See, it shut. It didn't open. And he talks about how the whole village knew that that man was not coming out of there unless it was to die. He actually had been passing by the prison. He looked up and he could see him like looking out the bars. And he says that in the village, they're whispering about that they won't execute him because that petitions have been presented in Paris showing that he was enraged and made mad by the death of his child. So we understand that this is the man that is responsible for the death of the Marquis. And it's also the father of the young child who was killed, who's run over by the carriage. And he's like, you know, the word was that a petition was taken to the king. I don't know if that's true or not. And at this point, Monsieur Defarge and some of the other Jacques are like, Yes, a petition was taken to the king. It was actually Monsieur Defarge who did take it to him. He like leapt after his carriage to shove it at him. And he was like beaten up by his guards and stuff and trying to give this petition to the king. But then the whispers start going around the village that even though, you know, this petition had been given to the king, they were like, no, he's going to be executed because he has slain the Monseigneur and because the Monseigneur was the father of his tenants and he will be executed as a parasite. Well, and then they go into this horrible description about this man who was murdered. Or just, he was executed in like this horrific way. I'm like, holy moly. I read Good. it to a couple of people today. I was like, oh, this. Good grief. <laughs> I don't know. Do you want me to go into it or not? It's so bad. It is so bad. But they're like thinking that this is how this guy is going to be killed as an example, because the other guy that was killed that way, he had tried to assassinate King Louis the Fifteenth. I'm not going to go into it. It's pretty disgusting. Just about as disgusting as the uh, the death they were going to do in the um, court. Yes, even more so though. Like, oh, yeah. If it could be worse, it is worse. And they talk about how this man that was killed that way. He was still alive after he'd been like ripped limb from limb. He eventually did die, I'm sure. But they were talking about how like this Mender of Rhodes was probably old enough that he may have seen it. The Mender of Rhodes continues his story and says that there was a gallows built right over the river, the water that they used in their village. And the man was taken out and he was hung 40 feet up in the air. The knife that he had used to kill the Monseigneur was like posted up there with him and his body just like hung over the water. And he kept saying, it's poisoning the water. Like that's where we get our water. That's where we wash and we can't use that water. That's pretty much the whole story. Pretty awful. It seems like they're trying to keep a register of everybody that is working. The Jacques want to talk, right? 
And so they send out the mender of roads. And then they talk about how the chateau, which is the marquee, it's his house, and all of his family needs to be exterminated, which would include Charles Darnay. That's true. So that's true. That's, but he keeps talking about the hungry man. And so he's like the one that's hungry for blood. And their last name is Evremond. I don't know. I don't speak French, but all of them need to be killed is basically what they're saying. Yeah. And they talk about how Madame Dufarge is sort of the one like keeping track of all these things. She and Monsieur Dufarge is like, she doesn't have to write things down. She remembers everything. But I think that she does knit things into codes. Like she keeps a record. Into their knitting, which is insane. Yeah. Yeah. But he's like, no, she has a record in her knitting, but she wouldn't even, she doesn't actually even need to, but because she remembers everything. Yeah, that's how they register people is in her. Yeah. In her mm-hmm. mind or in her knitting or whatever. And they talk for a minute about how now the mender of roads, he wants to go and like see the king and the queen in the court. The hungry man is like, oh, that's that's not good. Why would he want to go see them? Maybe he's against us, you know? And Defarge is like, judiciously show a cat milk if you wish her to thirst for it. Judiciously show a dog his natural prey if you wish him to bring it down one day. So basically, yes, expose him to the courts, show him what these people are living like, and that will get him on our side more than anything else. I think it's a few days later when they go to Versailles. They're in Versailles now, and Madame Dufarge is there. She's just in the crowd, and they're waiting to see the carriage of the king and the queen. And she's knitting, of course, and a man near her is like, what are you knitting? She's like, lots of things. He's like, okay, for instance, she says, for instance, shrouds. That's terrifying. <laughs> says, the man moved a little further away as soon as he could. And the mender of roads fanned himself with his blue cap, feeling it mightily close and impressive. They just see lots of fine ladies and lords. The mender of roads, he yells out, long live the king, long live the queen, long live everybody and everything. And then Defarge. He praises him and says, good job. Like, you yes. want them to think that the people are behind them. And yes. I wrote down, if the king thinks that the people are behind him, then he won't feel the need to protect himself. And so he'd be like left wide open. Yeah. He's like, you make these fools believe that it will last forever. So good job. And he says, these fools know nothing. While they despise your breath and would stop it forever and ever in you or in a hundred like you rather than one of their own horses or dogs, they only know what your breath tells them. Let it deceive them then a little longer. It cannot deceive them too much. So they've decided now the Mender of Rhodes is on their side. Interesting. Okay. So this chapter is called Still Knitting. I think they're coming back home and they realize that someone has been sent to spy on them Mm -hmm. in their quarter. And it turns out that his name is John Barsad, which wasn't he the other? Mm -hmm. He's the other one at uh, testifying against Charles Darnay at court. Okay. And then I'm going to bring this up and then we'll bring it up later. But she says, John Barsad, this is the madam and his appearance. Is it known? And then her husband says, age, about 40 years, height, about five feet, nine, black hair, complexion, dark, generally rather handsome visage. 
Eyes dark, face thin, long and sallow, nose aquiline, but not straight, having a peculiar inclination towards the left cheek. Expression, therefore, sinister. So I love this because that will come up again. He shall be registered tomorrow, which means she's going to put it into her knitting. Mm -hmm. I'd love to know how she does that. but Okay, so later... Defarge admits that he is tired and she says, I think you're a little bit depressed too. seems like there's something going on with you. And he kind of goes into this, how he thinks that the revolution is taking a long time. Mm -hmm. So he's like, it is a long time. And when is it not a long time? Vengeance and retribution require a long time. That's what his wife says. And so basically he's saying later that, he doesn't think that's actually going to happen in their lifetime. Yeah. He just keeps saying it does not take a long time to strike a man with lightning. Anyways, then they go into this whole analogy of the earthquake. She says it's like an earthquake. Well, it takes time to build, but then when it happens, it's catastrophic. It's always preparing though. It is not seen or heard. That is your consolation. Keep it. So she's like, keep like, just keep going. Like it's going to happen. Don't get frustrated that it's not happening yet. And And then she says, I tell thee that although it is a long time on the road, it is on the road and coming. I tell thee it never retreats and never stops. I tell thee it is always advancing. Look around and consider the lives of all the world that we know. Consider the faces of all the world that we know. Consider the rage and discontent to which the Jacquerie addresses itself with more and more of certainty every hour. Can such things last? Bah, I mock you. Anyway, so she's just like, keep keep doing this. It's going to happen. Don't worry about it. Right. And she says, I'm content to just wait. So basically she's content to wait, but wants to act when she needs to. And I love that because that's why I think the heading chapter still knitting comes in. Like she's waiting. She's just like knitting, still waiting. She tells him, yes, but it is your weakness that you sometimes need to see your victim and your opportunity to sustain you, sustain yourself without that. Like you need to keep going, even though you're not seeing the results that you want. Right. Yeah. When the time comes, let loose a tiger and a devil, but wait for the time with the tiger and the devil chained, not shown yet. Always ready. I thought that was mm-hmm. yeah. like, We're just waiting. You would need to keep them changed and not shown. A man comes into the wine shop who is different. They say that he his shadow looks different than the other people who have come in. But here's my question. Do you understand the rose, pinning the rose in her headdress, what that means? I don't know specifically, but I'm guessing, like, what I wrote down is that must be a code or a sign. Because as soon as she did that, everybody jumped up and left. So it must be sort of an understanding between the patrons and her that if she did that, they needed to leave. Somebody said like, even somebody came in and they just walked out. Yes. In her headdress. Yeah. As soon as they saw the rose on her headdress, they left. So they stopped talking Mm -hmm. and began and started leaving. Okay. So then John Barsad comes in. She says, good day, monsieur. She said it out loud, but added to herself as she resumed her knitting. Ha. Good day, age about 40, height about five feet, nine, black hair. So she goes into that whole like mm-hmm. <laughs> description of it. This is him. I figured I know who you are. So he asks for some drink. Then he's just like making small talk. Do you have a husband? Do you have, do you have children? No. 
business seems bad. Business is very bad. The people are so poor. So, And he's trying to get her to reveal that she has connections to the revolution. Okay, so she says business is bad. The people are so poor. Ah, the unfortunate, miserable people. So oppressed too, as you say. And she says, as you say. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not She's like, I never said that. Yeah. You said it. And then, so he's trying to pick up any crumbs he could find or make. He's still, he's just sitting in there trying to talk to her. He brings up Gaspard, who is the only person in the book mentioned when they say tall, a tall person, it's him. So it it brings up him. He's the one that was killed. Yes. In the last chapter. A bad business with this, madame, of Gaspard's execution. Ah, the poor Gaspard. Yeah, he's trying to bait her. Yes. The whole time. And then her husband comes in. She never falls for it because she knows exactly who he is. So when he says things like, oh, you know, that's so sad. What a sad business. She's like, well, if people use knives for killing people, they do have to pay for it. You know, she's kind of very nonchalant. He's like, well, I believe there's a lot of compassion and anger in this neighborhood about that. And she's like, is there? You know, she's just very noncommittal, very vague. And acts just, she's not biting. So I think this next part is when her husband comes in and he says to her husband, good day, Jacques. And he stops and he says, my name isn't Jacques. My name is Ernest Defarge. So that's another way he's trying to bait him. That's that code name, right? That means revolution. And he's like, no, my name is Ernest Defarge because they know who he is. And then the spy says, it's all the same. So they say hello to each other. Let's see. So then what he's doing isn't working. So he switches tactics. And he's like, I think you know these people, Dr. Manette and his daughter in England. And they say yes. And he's like, you don't hear much about them now? No. And then he starts to tell him that they got married or they're going to get married. They're going to get married. Yeah. Going to be married. Yes. To one who, like herself, is French by birth. And speaking of Gaspard, oh, poor Gaspard. It was cruel, cruel. It is a curious thing that she's going to marry the nephew of Monsieur the Marquis, for whom Gaspard was exalted to the height of so many feet. In other words, the present Marquis. So he's the one that has inherited everything. Yes. So it's so if sad. He was, yeah. She's going to marry this man who is connected to this family. Anyway, so he knows that his name is Charles Darnay. And then he reveals the name of his mother's family, the Dolnay very similar to Darnay. Oh, that's interesting. He doesn't say what his father's family name is, but we already know it, right? Yeah. So she keeps knitting. One thing that I do want to say here, though, is that Madame Dufage, she keeps knitting. She has that to distract her when something actually hits her. But Monsieur Dufage does not. And it's obvious that this piece of information has, has hit him. And the spy knows that. And the spy knows that he's sort of scored a point. Yeah. So he brings up this information, right? Of the nephew of the Marquis is actually Charles Darnay, who's going to marry Lucy or has married her. I'm not quite sure. Mm -hmm. And so he watches the impact of that exchange. And then he leaves. Defarge is just like in disbelief. So she records Charles's name into her knitting. She does. And that's and what upsets when, him. And one thing that Defarge says, he's like, well, it may not be true. And she's like, well, what if it is? 
And he's like, well, I hope for her sake, for Miss Manette's sake, that her husband stays out of France. And Madame Dufarge is just like, her husband's destiny will take him where he is to go and will lead him to the end that is to end him. That's all I know. She is, we see Monsieur Defarge, he's very passionate. He sees the absolute injustice and, you know, horrific tendencies of the nobility towards the peasants and just the everyday person. But he still has feeling. He still has conscience. She seems to be past that to where she immediately knits Charles Darnay's name right next to that of Barsad on her register. I was wondering when she was going to turn. I mean, you know, because she's not. I, I knew she wasn't going to be our favorite person in the novel. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. here we go. So this is interesting in this, like, it, it's like a analysis. To Defarge, human connection still means something. But to Madame Defarge, all aristocrats must die, no matter what. So she's yeah. just like, yeah. no mercy. Well, and the very last part of this, it it gets pretty because we see that there's all these women knitting. They're knitting and knitting and knitting. And I'm just very briefly going over this. The darkness starts to fall. So much was closing in about the women who sat knitting, knitting, that they, their very selves, were closing in around a structure yet unbuilt, the guillotine, where they were to sit knitting, knitting, counting, dropping heads. Dun, dun, dun. Freaky. Good place to end. In my book, there's little stars at the end when, like, at the point where it was a new addition or new installment. Oh, that's cool. There's stars there. Okay. That makes sense because that is a really good place for an installment to end and to go, what happens next? This is such a great book because... He's really building, 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 building. It is a lot like Far From the Madding Crowd. You can just see the brilliancy of these authors where they're just, they build the story. It keeps getting better and better. The plot keeps thickening and thickening and you just get into it more and more. Anyway. I think a lot of people love this book. I noticed as I've told people Mm -hmm. this is what we're doing. They're like, oh, I love that book. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm excited because I'm finally like understanding this book. Okay, so what have you been reading this week? Okay, I talked before about how I usually share a book that I'm done with. I'm not going to do that today. Today I'm going to talk about a book that I am in the midst of, and right now I'm waiting because it's on hold again. So I'm waiting for it to come back to me. So, and it's a very long book. So it's called A Gentleman in Moscow, and I think that probably a lot of people have read it or heard of it by um, I don't, I don't want to butcher his name, but it's Amor Tolls. It takes place in Russia. It begins in like 1922, so it's like right midst of the Bolshevik Revolution and uh, you know the major upheaval and everything going on in Russia, which would carry on for many, many years. It was rough. So this man who was of the aristocracy, so they all had it out for the aristocracy, right? But he had written a poem that the comrades did not approve of right the powers that be they did not like and so instead of shooting him they confined him it was basically house arrest in a hotel he had to live for the rest of his life in this hotel and so it's talking about all of his experiences there and things that go on and there's one point where he just wants to end it all 
anyway, it's really interesting. And what I've noticed about it is I haven't looked into it. I don't totally know if Amor Tolls is Russian, but I kind of think he might be. Either that or he studied a lot about Russian literature and authors because his writing, the cadence, just the storytelling, it reminds me so much of Leo Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, uh, very reminiscent to me of just sort of the feel of like war and peace where it's just very very detail oriented just tells you piece by piece I don't know how else to describe it that just builds this story it's just kind of maybe some people will think this is blasphemous but it's sort of gentle storytelling is how I want to describe it it's not a fast moving plot it's like you would say it's more character driven yes and plot yes very much so. So is this the first time you've read it? Yeah, it is. Well, I started it years a couple years ago for our book club. I'm pretty sure it was for our book club, but I did not get a chance to finish it. And so I was only a couple of chapters in, I think. So anyway, yeah, we've never read it before all the way through. But yeah, I'm enjoying it so far. Yeah, it's that's a good one. I um that happened to me this week too. So like I had talked about reading Solito. A couple mm-hmm. weeks back, I had like an hour and a half left of it. And I don't know how I did this. But I forgot to read the rest. Okay. So I am now waiting for it again. <laughs> it says seven weeks. I'm like, yeah. Oh. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure I remember what was happening, but like, <laughs> now I get to wait seven weeks to finish it. I just, when I got the email that said it had returned, I was like, oh no. Yeah, I know. Seriously. Well, and it seems like with all the, digital library consortium, things like that. They only give you two weeks. And for a 17 hour book, even if you're listening at one and a half to 1.75 speed, like it's a long time. So, And especially where it is a little more slow moving, I really enjoy it. But sometimes I just need another book that's more like fast paced. So I did listen to others in between there. (laughs) Yeah. I think a gentleman in Moscow is one of those that you, it's kind of like a classic, like what we're doing, like take breaks and read it slowly. Cause it's, yes, I believe that it is. I believe it is sort of slated for being a classic. Oh yeah. Very good. Very good. Oh, yeah. so. And so normally when I talk about a book, I've either finished it or I'm really close. So I'm pretty close on this one. I also have another hour and a half, but I'm not, I bought this one. So <laughs> it's not going to return on me, but anyways, it's called go as a river by Shelly Reed. And I believe it's like brand new. I had heard about it. I think it came out in March, but oh my gosh, it's so good. <laughs> it's one of those. Okay. So there's books when you can turn them on in the morning. So I drive a lot for work. So I'll be in the car for 12 hours in and out of the car. And there's books where I can turn them on and I can just listen straight for 12 hours. Mm -hmm. And then there's books where like I get tired and have to take breaks, right? This book I could have just listened to straight. Oh, Oh that's awesome. It was so good. So it's about this girl, like a teenage girl who lives on a peach farm with her family. The mother and aunt, this happens right at the beginning of the book, the mother, aunt, and cousin that they're raising get in a car accident and die and don't come back. And so she's left on this peach farm with her dad, her horrible little brother, and an uncle that was wounded in a in the war. And so like he's like in a wheelchair and can't take care of himself. And anyways, and so they might have been low 
lower income, lower whatever before, but now that this has happened, it's even worse. Mm. Anyways, they live on this peach farm. She goes into town one day and runs into this boy that she just falls in love with immediately. His name is Wilson. I can't remember his last name. Anyways, well, she like falls in love with him. He kind of, he, he also falls in love with her. He kind of watches her. Well, she finds out that he's an Indian and everybody, this is in the forties, I think Hmm. everybody is out to get him. Hmm. So anyways, they have this, you know, there's just lots of prejudice and like, yeah, they think he's not worth living and they accuse him of all these things, but they kind of become an, a couple secretly. I don't, it's it's hard to explain because you just like, how much do you want to tell? Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, it sounds fun. But they like kind of escape into the wilderness, into the woods, into this hut. And that's where they would meet. Well, something happens to him. And so she has, because of circumstances that happened between them, she has to leave town. And so she hides up into this hut in the wilderness. It kind of, I saw a couple of things that said it was similar to where the crawdads sing. Oh, Okay because she goes out and she's like living alone and Mm. trying to figure out how to survive it's very oh my gosh it's so good I can't wait to find out what happens at the very end but awesome I can't tell you much more about it okay (laughs) but you should read it yeah okay tell me the name of it one more time go as a river by Shelly Reed gosh I think it's her first book too so that makes me excited all these debut authors good grief I'm worried everything crashed around me all these debut authors, I'm like, hey, I need to, I need to do that with my life. We're so happy you joined us for this episode. We hope you will join us next week as we discuss A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, book two, chapters 17 through 24. If you have suggestions for books we should read and discuss, please email us at thebestbookspodcast at gmail.com. We would love it if you would leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share our podcast with your friends. We want to inspire and encourage as many people as we can to read out of the best books. As Thoreau says, read the best books first or you may not have a chance to read them at all. See you next week. We should change this podcast to like the moms that are half asleep talking. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, seriously.